0: If I have not met you is Ross, and I get to serve here as one of the pastors. I'm also uh, filling in for Justin this morning, who uh, is playing a little Super Bowl of his own down in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, getting he got uh, his second hip surgery, his second hip replacement surgery uh, this week. So. Uh, and he really, he did really want to preach this morning. He wanted to Skype in and and uh, and, and preach, even though he just had surgery. But the elders kind of decided that was that was probably just the pain meds talking. So, they they sent me up here instead. Um, but uh, but no, he's he's really doing fine. He's uh, recovering really well. Uh, already he's walking on a cane and uh, and eating Chick Fil A and enjoying Arizona sunshine. So that's good. Um, a couple of years ago, I found myself. Uh, as most of us in this room maybe uh, periodically do, watching a Netflix show that probably we shouldn't be watching. It's kind of a waste of time. And, um, I was watching uh, Master of None. If, if anybody? Actually, I won't, because I don't want you to admit to watching Master of None. Uh, it's, it's, and I'm just using this this show as, a, as an illustration. It's not a recommendation from me. It's, a, it's just an illustration, not a commendation. There's a million other ways that you could best spend your time. But I... Uh, uh, this, the show, Master of None, it was created by uh, Aziz Ansari, he's an actor and comedian, he also plays the main character in the show, uh, Dev Shaw. and it's basically really no plot line, he's just kind of uh, aimlessly wandering through life as a young aspiring actor in New York City, trying to find meaning and fulfillment and have, have fun along the way. But then, the final episode of the show, the final episode two, is finally something interesting happens um, his boss, Dev's boss, who's played by Aziz Ansari, he, uh, he finds out that his boss, who's the producer of the show that he's working for, has been, uh, 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 sexually harassing a lot of, a a number of women that have been working for him, working under him, and all these undeniable allegations and accusations comes out, and, uh, when Dev, the main character, he finds out about this, he's like immediately shocked and devastated. He loves his boss, he's a great guy, he's funny, he, he, you know, he's cool to be around, he's rich and how could he, be, how could he do this, uh, this horrible thing? But then, um, uh, by the end of the show, Dev comes out to be the hero, uh, of course, and because he confronts his boss, he turns down his, uh, the extension of his job, turns down a bunch of money, uh, all because he wants to stand up against this horrible injustice and uh, doesn't want to be associated with this kind of misogynist offender. And uh, this was this was uh, this was filmed. This, uh, Aziz Ansari wrote this episode and then starred in it right in at the in, in 2017. So that's kind of if you remember like the height of the hashtag #MeToo movement, uh, which is I guess still kind of going on, and that's right in the height of all that in the media, and so. Z is uh, pu- you know, putting himself out there as this adamant defender of women, someone who hates uh, who hates you know this you know this, these these crimes and what uh, what's going on in Hollywood and in so many other uh, industries uh, to women. He's really painting himself as a, really a noble kind of person. Uh, and all that made it even more kind of disgusting and revolting to find out that about a year later, a little bit more than a year later, in 2000, at the end of 2018, a whole bunch of allegations came out against Aziz Ansari himself about sexual misconduct with the women that he was working with. Uh, and this, and I, I, you know, the, the, these kind of accusations, they're virtually impossible to prove. And really the point of this illustration is not to condemn or to, you know, pronounce whether he's innocent or guilty, but it, it does, this illustration does show us two principles, two key truths that are, uh, that are both true but both paradoxical and almost contradictory. The first is that hypocrisy is revolting to us, right? It's disgusting when we, when we hear someone who's been preaching one message or virtue signaling one message and then we find out that they're actually propagating and doing that same thing That's disgusting to us. There's something instinctively that we know is wrong about that. But then secondly, not only is hypocrisy revolting, it's also rampant in our culture. We see it at every level, everywhere we turn. We see it in in Hollywood with comedians and actors. We see it uh, in politicians. We see it in the church itself, celebrity pastors. Hypocrisy is at the same time revolting to us, and it's rampant. Yeah, Hypocrisy is not a new sin. In fact, Jesus, made himself, uh, 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 Jesus himself made teaching against hypocrisy one of the fundamental aspects of his time on earth, of his ministry. He, there are not very many things that he spent more time on than preaching against the sin of hypocrisy, empty, uh, self-exalting, two-faced religion. In our passage for this morning, we see one of those examples in which Jesus zo- uh, zooms in and, and really hits hard against hypocrisy. So, uh, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? Um, we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 18. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The, the words will be on the, uh, on the screen behind me initially, but then um, it'd be really great if you have a copy of Scripture either on your phone or paperback uh, or a hard copy um, to to be able to follow along with me uh, as, we, as we go. So let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll read the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, You are the one Lord and one true God. You never stop changing, never deceiving, never two-faced. You never make yourself out to seem like something You are not. And You are always reliable. And as we study your word, would you make us more like you, more like your son, Jesus? And so now would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter six, starting in verse one. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Instead, pray like this Our Father excuse me, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you remember, uh, these words make up part of what is commonly referred to uh, as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus' inaugural address in which He's Casting vision to his disciples and those following him of about what the kingdom of heaven that he is ushering in, what that's supposed to look like, and then at the same time what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom. And we saw last week that Jesus, or that Justin, get those confused sometimes in my own head. Um, <laughs> that that Justin led us through the second half of five. And there we saw that in Jesus' new kingdom, the law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, would not be abolished, but they would be fulfilled. And what we mean by that is that under Jesus' reign, the law would be followed in the way God always intended it to be followed. That's what we mean by fulfillment. And it wouldn't be followed, not merely externally, but in the heart and Jesus makes this point in, in verse 20 of chapter 5 by telling us that our righteousness must exceed that of the religious leaders of his day. Our righteousness must not be merely external, it must be internal. We must possess kingdom hearts. Today we will see that Jesus continues that theme and to, he continues to unpack this theme of, of what it means to have a true kingdom heart, true inner righteousness, but he shifts his focus just slightly. For us. Look at verse 1 of chapter, t- chapter 6. He tells us now how to practice righteousness. Right? This is the same word that's used for righteousness when he describes, uh, that he uses in chapter 5, verse 20. But now we're looking at righteousness from a little bit of a different angle. P- possessing inner righteousness tells us what we are not to do. Right, We saw last week, we're not to lust, we're not to hate, we're not to uh, uh, break our promises. But, in, but the inner righteousness of the kingdom also gives us an outward, a positive command. It tells us what we should do. And just as we read, Jesus fleshes this righteousness out in three particular areas: giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. That's kind of the outline, the breakdown of our passage this morning. And as these three and these three areas, giving Prayer and fasting are three primary elements of biblical worship, right? Worship is not just what we do honoring when we gather, but it's a it's a whole life thing. We are there are many fasts of biblical worship. Worship is about a life lived in service to God. So the big picture question that that Jesus wants us to wrestle in this with in this passage is: as citizens of Christ's kingdom, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how do we worship, how do we serve God? As he intends. How do we worship righteously? I think is the theme that he, that he wants us to consider. And as Jesus addresses each of these three areas, he does so in a very predictable pattern. If You, you may have caught on to that as we were reading. He, he, um, there are three parts uh, in, in each section. First, he gives a negative command, when you pray or give or, or fast. Uh, don't be like the hypocrites. So that's a negative command, right? But, and then in, in uh, prayer, he actually gives us a little bit of a bonus section starting in verse 7. He says, not only are we to be like the hypocrites, we're also not to be like the Gentiles. And we'll, we'll come to that uh, a little later. But then after giving a negative command, he also gives a positive command. So that we're not to be like the Gentiles or the hypocrites, but we are to, to pray and give and fast in a certain way. Um, um, and he describes the proper way of doing it. And then finally he, includes, he concludes each section with a promise of, of assurance. Uh, but as I noticed this week, there's something that Jesus does not do. So that's what he does do. But this is, there, there's something that he does not do when he talks about these three spiritual disciplines. He, he doesn't give us the answers that we want to hear really, when you think about it. He doesn't tell us, here are three effective steps to a healthy prayer life, right? Or here are five ways to just breeze through fasting. He doesn't, he doesn't give us anything measurable or anything, uh, anything uh, external for us to grab onto. Instead, he immediately gets to the crux of the matter. He tells us that our real issue has very little to do with answering these, these external or measurable questions. Our real issue Has to do with the corruption of our hearts, our two-faced, inauthentic, play-acting, corrupt motives. Jesus is obsessed with our hearts. Now you may be here and and thinking to yourself, "Okay, hold on a minute. That is not me. I am not a hypocrite. I am not inauthentic, right? I don't go around blasting music whenever I, you know, when the when the offering baskets are, are passed." passed around, right? I don't I don't go and pray long, flowy, extravagant prayers in public for everybody to hear. I don't even like praying in public. I certainly don't disfigure my face in order to let people know that I've skipped a meal. I'm not a hypocrite, it's those people who are out there that are the hypocrites, right? It's the celebrity pastors It's the that are just dragging Jesus' name through the mud. It's the, it's the politicians, right? Trump's the hypocrite, Hillary's the, the hypocrite, not me. But, what, but before you, you tune me out, notice the kind of hypocrisy, the kind of false righteousness that Jesus is addressing. Normally, when we think of hypocrisy, we, we think of the kinds of things that I mentioned earlier. One who preaches one, one thing and then does the opposite. That's not really what the hypocrites that Jesus is addressing here are doing, right? There, it's not like they're saying we, they pray, but then they don't really pray. They actually are praying. It's not like they're saying, "Oh no, we, we fast all the time, but then they never really fast. They, they really are fasting, right? He, he's not concerned with what they're doing, nearly as much so as why they are doing it. Look at what he highlights in the verses behind me. They they practice righteousness in order to be seen by others. It's the purpose, right? That's in verse 1. And in verse 2, that they may be praised by others. That they may may receive glory from others. Then in verse 5 and verse 16 as well, that they may be seen by others. Hypocrisy from Jesus' perspective is not out there, right? Hypocrisy is right in here. Jesus is telling us that hypocrisy is about inconsistency and a lack of integrity in all spheres of life. And he tells us that we are guilty of play-acting, that we're guilty of being two-faced, of, of displaying false righteousness anytime we turn something that is, made, that is meant to make God look good and use it instead to make ourselves look good. We're guilty of hypocrisy Anytime we take something that's meant to make God look good instead to make ourselves look good. And so as Jesus invites us to turn away from this kind of inauthentic life, the first thing that we've been looking at, the first thing that He tells us to do is to discern our hearts. He tells us to take the, the magnifying glass off other people's and turn it all right and my, my Repeated prayer for myself this week uh, has been, God, would you root out the mixed and twisted motives which seem to taint and infiltrate the large majority of my actions, if I'm honest. And we do so much of this without even thinking, don't we? We we, we don't need to get creative. You see, the hypocrites and the Gentiles—they needed to get creative with their hypocrisy. They needed to, to come up with some way to brag about it. We don't need to do that. That's because self-promotion is so ingrained in us; it's second nature. We 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 talk about ourselves in a way that that puffs puffs us up without even realizing what we're doing. Right? How many how many how many conversations do you have? In which, without even thinking about it, you're carefully crafting your words to make sure other people uh, know how competent, how accomplished, how humble, how self-sacrificing that we are. Right? How many times do we, do we use social media in that way uh, without even thinking about it? What ultimately drives what you post on Facebook or, or on Instagram? Alright, here's a helpful practice for us to, to consider, even just this evening, as we're maybe tonight, as, as, before you go to bed, as you're reflecting on the day, uh, thinking about, just roll through some of the conversations and interactions that you've had, that you have with some people, whether it be here at church, or while you're watching the game, or while you're around the, around the dinner table, as you, and as you think about these, these, conversation, these conversations, ask yourself, how are you trying to present yourself with your words and your actions? And then what was going on in your heart that drove you to present yourself in that way? If our king is concerned with the state of our hearts and the root causes of our actions, then we must take time to consider our motives and discern our hearts. Yet as important as this kind of introspection is... And uh, and it's a practice that we should regularly be, be doing, is searching our own hearts, as the psalmist tells us to. Following Jesus as king does not end with simply looking into our hearts and searching for the reasons why we, why we do the things we do. We must also, and secondly, take steps to cultivate, take proactive steps to cultivate inner righteousness. And that's what we'll look at next. Look first at, at what, uh, uh, we'll just go through the, go through the passage again br- uh, briefly. Um, look at first at what he tells us about how to give. We are to give to the poor in such a way that our left hand doesn't even know that our right hand is reaching out to help someone. And this is really kind of unfortunate for all of us here in this room because as we were talking about this text uh, with the elders in the, in our, in, uh, this week and, and Paul Peterson, he told me that uh, if he ever saw someone broken down on the side of the road, then he couldn't in good conscience help them, help that person, because he'd be afraid that one of you guys would, would see him, right? But, so just keep that in mind next time you see Paul Peterson with a, with a flat tire on, on the side of the road, okay? He's probably not going to return the favor. So, no, obviously Jesus is, is using exaggeration, right? And Paul knew that, he's joking so, uh, but, but this is uh, hyperbole, right? D- notice, Jesus doesn't say uh, don't give unless you can give with the right motives. No, we're to give whether we feel like it or not, but he does say give in such a way as to kill the wrong motives for giving that are in your heart. Give in such a way, worship God in such a way, fast in such a way, pray in such a way, as to kill the wrong motives for doing those things that are in your heart. He makes a similar point with prayer. He says, if when you pray in front of others, you find yourself more concerned about how those people are hearing your words than with how God is hearing your words, then you need to take steps to kill that impulse. So he says, go into your room and pray where no one can see you. No one can be impressed by you. No one can give you credit or even ever think about you. D.A. Carson says it this way, uh, his, his words are on the screen behind me. He says, Though The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. Does that describe you? The, the person who prays more in, in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in, empty pra- and than in human praise. And then finally, so giving, then praying, and then finally he comes to fasting. He tells his listeners to anoint your head and wash your face. And that basically just means in their day, just exercise good, normal hygiene, right? Don't act as if nothing is different in your day. And just a, another side note about fasting. Um, we live in a society of overabundance, is how I would probably characterize this. Most of us have more than enough food and resources than we need to survive, which is a very, very rare thing for most humans throughout human history. But that being said, because of the abundance of food and material prosperity, fasting, going without, denying ourselves, it goes against every aspect, everything our culture stands for it goes against the american dream so if fasting is not a practice that you regularly enjoy i would highly encourage you just to take a stab at it this week All right it was the practice of the earliest christians to fast on mondays and thursdays so fasting is a part of our heritage as the people of god and so maybe just Practically, you take a day this week. You think about as you think about your, your week. You just take a day this week and you skip lunch or you skip a meal, and instead instead you take that time to to meditate on scripture, to pray for your family members, to pray for uh, your coworkers. Jesus's point here is that it's to be simple and unimpressive. That's the whole point. And so cultivate inner righteousness by doing whatever it takes to kill self promotion. Do whatever it takes to kill self promotion. The driveway uh, in our home uh, that we lived in in South Carolina looked a lot like the, the sidewalk that was behind me. Uh, over, we had real long, built tall uh, pine trees that grew in our yard, and over time, the, the roots of those giant pine trees had grown so long and so thick that they just destroyed the concrete, right? It was, I mean, you could barely drive our uh, little car uh, into its parking spot without scraping the bottom of the car because the, 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 the concrete had been uh, destroyed that much and the mounds were that big. And it's amazing that these seemingly harmless things that lie under the surface will inevitably cause so much damage. You can't even really see it happening, but you see its effects. And Jesus is telling us that unchecked hypocrisy and unchecked self-promotion will do the exact same thing to those who try to follow Him. So we're asking the question, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, how are we to worship as God intends? And Jesus invites us, firstly, to discern our own hearts, then secondly, to cultivate inner righteousness. And then thirdly, he he invites us to delight in the Father. Did you notice how many times Jesus in this passage refers to God as our Father? That's the only name that he gives gives to God in this passage. Father, Father, Heavenly Father. Ten times in 18 verses, every other sentence, he's referring to God as Father. What's what's the deal with that? Why why emphasize that so much here? I think that what Jesus is doing is he's telling us what the Father is like in these verses. Jesus is reminding us of the goodness of our Father. He promises that as we cultivate inner righteousness and kill self-promotion, it will be worth it because of your Father. Because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Three times He repeats that promise to us. He sees what is done in secret. That means there's no need to broadcast. That's an interesting phrase. He will reward you. Have you thought about that uh, at all? It, might, it kind of sounds odd to us to think about worshiping, giving, prayer, fasting uh, in order to get some kind of payment or reward back from God. Right? That sounds almost heartless and insincere in its in itself. Right? We're not. We we don't want. We're we're not doing this uh, in order to you know get a bigger mansion in heavy, heaven or. Uh, or get, get some extra cash from God on the last day, right? We're, it, it sounds like Jesus is saying, we're basically just mercenaries who have real, no real concern for God, we're just in it for the prize, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus is encouraging at all, although it is what we do encourage in children's ministry, and we are giving prizes away to kids in order to incentivize good behavior for them. So just so you know, we're, we're a lot like God in that, in that respect. Um, but actually, I think C.S. Lewis he um, he he summarizes it really well. What's going on with these with these rewards? And um, uh, he has a really helpful for us to consider. in, in one of his essays, uh, it's called "The Weight of Glory." It's it's a really uh, well worth your time. If you just if you you can just Google it, uh, "The Weight of Glory" by C.S. Lewis, and you'll find a free PDF copy or something like that. Um, but uh, it would be worth the several minutes that it takes for you to read. But in this essay, he distinguishes between different kinds of rewards, right? And so he uses the illustration of a man who marries a woman just for her money, right? Uh, and in that, and that way, the money that he gets from that marriage is kind of like a reward, right, for, for that. But we, at the same time, we would say, no, that's unjust. That should not happen. A man should not marry a woman uh, for, just for her money. And uh, we say that, we instinctively get that, because money and love are not linked. There's no connection to them. But then, uh, on the flip side, marriage is the proper reward for love. So we would never say that a man is unjust because he loves a woman so much that he married her, right? That he, he, he should get to enjoy the reward of marriage. A man is not considered a mercenary if he marries someone he really loves. That's because marriage and love are bound together in a way that love and money, they're not bound together. So he sums it up in this way. He says, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Let me repeat that again. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. So, okay, what does that mean, and then what does that mean for our passage? Well, as we, Jesus is telling us that as we lay aside false righteousness, as we lay aside hypocrisy, hypocritical worship, and we chase after righteousness like Jesus tells us to, we can know that our reward will be far greater than any of the empty wages that we get from other people. We can fully trust in the goodness of our Father knowing that we will be rewarded not as mercenaries just striving for a bigger room or more money or anything like that, but we will be uh, rewarded with proper rewards, the full expression, the consummation of true and inner righteousness. We will get and become what we are seeking. The beauty of a clean conscience and a right restored relationship with our Father as we stand face to face with Him in His consummated Kingdom and worship Him as we were meant to worship Him. So our Father is good because He promises us proper rewards. But when we come to the topic of prayer, we we said that Jesus emphasizes God's goodness from a different angle. You look again at the beginning of verse 7. He adds an extra section which includes the Lord's Prayer. Um, And in this bonus section, he says, Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't pray like the Gentiles who think that their gods will listen to them because they pray extravagant prayers. These Gentiles, just for context, these Gentiles were obviously were Jews. were not Jews, obviously. That's why they're called Gentiles, and they worship the pantheon of the gods of the Roman Empire. Uh, and at the core of this religion was the belief that if I do things the right way, if I pray the right way, and say all the right words and in the right order, and make all the right sacrifices, then the gods will have to be re, will have to reward me. With good health or good crops or victory in battle or whatever it is that I'm looking for. Instead, Jesus says, pray simply. That's what the Lord's prayer is. It's a very simple prayer using everyday words. Remembering that God knows what you need before you even ask. You don't need to impress him with how much you pray or say just the right words to heap up a bunch of empty religious phrases or try to twist him into getting twist his arm into getting him to do what you want. He already loves you, right? He already cares for you and delights to meet your need. You don't have to convince him to do that or try to win him over. He is a good father and cares for his children like a good father does. Should radically change the way we recite the the Lord's Prayer, every line of it. Unfortunately, many of us in this room were not blessed with good fathers, right? So, thinking about God as a good father is very muddy, it's very uh, difficult for us. Many fathers are withholding and manipulative. And maybe you're here today and you always felt like you had to work to make your father proud of you, to earn his approval. I want you to know that that is not the way your Heavenly Father views you. He delights in you and delights to meet your needs. So, but notice, if we just zoom out for a second, notice what Jesus is doing here. Notice how He's trying to change our behavior and get us to worship God as He, he, as he intends. He is correcting our wrong behavior, our false righteousness, our our false ways of praying, fasting, and giving. He's correcting that wrong behavior with good and right theology. In, In order to worship and serve God as He intends, with pure motives and inner righteousness, we must first think the right things about God. We must conceive of Him correctly. So Jesus is getting at that. And then we must believe those right that right thinking about God. We must believe that at the core of who we are. That's the only thing that's going to lead to lasting and true worship. And this is because as humans, we don't naturally think about God the way that we should. Right? My theology, if left to my own devices, is really bad theology. Right? My theology tells me that doing things in order to be seen by others, in order to get, receive praise from them, is at the end of the day going to be way better than doing something to receive a, a reward from God, right? right? I doubt that the reward that I will get from my father that for what my father sees me do in secret is really better than the reward that I will get from feeding my own ego. Right? It, isn't that why we present ourselves the way we present ourselves and why we promote ourselves so sneakily and subtly and so often? It's because we believe that if people didn't think highly of us, life really wouldn't be worth living. But that's not all. Oftentimes, I have the same bad theology that Jesus says the Gentiles have, right? In verse 8, I believe that if anyone is going to look out for my needs, if anyone's going to meet my needs, if anyone's going to care about me, it's got to be me. God can't possibly have... uh, have my best interests in mind. And therefore, I'm going to be the one that has to try to get God to see things from my perspective or try to convince Him to to provide for me in the way I want to be provided for and make sure that I say the right words to get Him to respond in the way that I want Him to. So we tell ourselves, right, when we pray pray for something and God doesn't answer us the way we, we want Him to answer us, we, the first thing we go to is, oh, I didn't pray hard enough, or I didn't pray in the right way, or I didn't pray enough about it. I didn't believe enough. I didn't have enough faith. I couldn't muster enough faith up. Right? But that's silly. right? God's ability to answer your prayers does not depend on you at all. It does not depend on how often, or how well, or uh, what kind of prayers you pray. Both of these theologies, both the theology of the Gentiles and the Gentiles, they represent what could be called an orphan theology, an orphan theology that denies goodness of their fathers. Right? There are a lot of us, like me, who make it a regular habit to run around the streets looking for scraps of praise and approval from others, not realizing that our Father is waiting inside with a feast prepared for us. And then there are others of us who think things like, like a, a, a child who thinks, I've got to get really good grades or, there's, or, or always make sure my room is, is clean and always make sure I say just the right things when dad's around. Otherwise, there's no way dad's going to let me eat with the rest of the family. But in reality, our dad delights to share a meal with us and wants to do far more than that simply because he is our father and he is a good father. Not because we offer him anything that he might need or want. Yet here's the thing. Unless you and I believe that this about our Father and it seeps down into our hearts, then we're never going to be able to cultivate inner righteousness and worship Him as He intends. So the question for us, the question I racked over my own heart over this week is, where am I doubting God's goodness? Where has that suddenly creeped in? And then how has doubting that goodness, the goodness of my Father, how has that... Produced in me false righteousness, an orphan theology that tells me I have to scrap and earn approval from others rather than resting in the approval from my Father. The main point here that I think Matthew wants us to take from these verses that we're looking at is this. And this is, if there's one thing that you remember from this sermon, if there's one thing that you write down, if there's one thing that you take away, it's this this next sentence. Only by resting in the goodness of our Father can we truly lay aside our false displays of righteousness and worship Him as He intends. Only by resting in the goodness of our Father can we truly lay aside our false righteousness, our our hypocrisy, and worship Him as He intends. So here's another diagnostic test for you to consider this morning. When was the last time you had an emotional gut-level, heart-stirring response to the goodness of God in Christ? When was the last time you, you were affected emotionally by the goodness of your Heavenly Father? Right? Christianity is not just about mere emotionalism or getting warm fuzzies from Jesus, right? That, that, but the gospel and the goodness of our Father should affect you emotionally. And if we're not resting in His goodness then we will be, like the Jews and like the Gentiles, we will be resting in something else. We will either rest in other people's opinions of us, or, as Jesus says of the Gentiles, we will be resting in our ability to control and manipulate a situation in order to get the outcomes that we want. And resting in either of these things will produce hypocritical, self-promoting, and self-promoting lives of empty worship. We can lay aside our false displays of righteousness and worship God as He intends only by truly resting in His goodness. Only, our, our King Jesus, He is leading us to a good Father who knows you and who sees you. To be citizens of His kingdom, we must cling to Him in utter dependence. Jesus here is not merely our teacher, He doesn't just tell us these things. He is actually our guide. He has gone before us, leading the way in every respect. He lived His life in, in perfect worship of the Father. He's the only one who's ever been completely righteous from the inside out. Yet as where our righteousness calls us to not get praise from other people, His righteousness led Him to be mocked and reviled by other people. He fasted, so that we could feast. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done, so that we could experience His kingdom come. And He did not merely give to the poor, but He Himself became poor, and so that by His poverty, we might become rich. And this has all been secured for us only because of His life, death, and resurrection for us, in our place, and on our behalf. So as we close, let's, let's pray as He taught us to pray. We didn't get to spend a lot of time unpacking the Lord's Prayer, um, but as we meditate on this, as we ponder these words uh, line by line, uh, pray as a child who's running firmly in the goodness of your Father. So would you let, let's all stand together and read this out loud together, and the, as the, the band's going to come up as we, as we pray. But we'll read this out loud all at the same time together. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.